مين ارهابي انت ارهابي مين 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 ارهابي انت ارهابي مين ارهابي انا ارهابي كيف ارهابي وانا عايش ببلادي مين ارهابي انت ارهابي ماكلني وانا عايش ببلادي قاتلني زي ما تلت اجدادي Hello and welcome to Swana Region Radio, a weekly review of politics and culture bringing you the voices of the voiceless from Kolkata to Casablanca here on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara and 93.7 FM in Northern San Diego, as well as streaming worldwide on kpfk.org. My name is David Lloyd, and I'm a member of the South Asia, West Asia, and Northern Africa, or SWANA Collective, that brings you your weekly half hour of SWANA Region Radio. My co-host today is fellow Collective member Rana Sharif. Our introductory music today is the track Min Erhabi by the Palestinian rap group Dam. It means, who's the terrorist? That's the question we want to pose on this weekend of Nakba commemorations after a week in which Israeli state and settler violence against Palestinians has once again reached a crescendo of fury and brutality. The conclusion of the Muslim holy month of Ramadan this week has not seen the customary celebration of Eid al-Fitr, but a vicious upsurge of Israeli violence against Palestinians across historic Palestine. For some time, Israeli police have been suppressing demonstrations in Sheikh Jarrah in occupied East Jerusalem against the eviction of Palestinian families from their homes by a right-wing settler organization that's part of Israel's continuing effort to dispossess and displace Palestinians all over 48 and the West Bank. Israeli police also barred Muslims from celebrating Ramadan at the Damascus Gate and from reaching the venerated Al-Aqsa compound in the Old City and violated its sanctity with tear gas, noise bombs, and military incursions into the holy site. Across Israel and the West Bank, violent settler mobs have reacted with fury against growing Palestinian protest and engaged in ugly attacks on the persons and property of Palestinians who are supposed to be their fellow citizens. In response to these violations, Hamas and other militant organizations in Gaza have fired barrages of rockets that for the first time have succeeded in penetrating Israeli defenses and striking far from the Gaza border. These responses to Israeli violence were met with a full-out assault by Israel's armed forces in which they have already massacred at least 139 Palestinians, most of them women and children, in Gaza's open-air prison. As always, homes, schools, and other civilian infrastructure have been pounded in accord with Israel's Dahiya doctrine, which advocates for the destruction of civilian infrastructure in violation of international law. Nonetheless, we have been treated to the customary spectacle this week of a nearly mouthed US president and his appointees pronouncing on Israel's right to self-defense while ignoring their closest allies, endless violations of international and humanitarian law, and the Palestinians' own legal right as an occupied people to defend themselves and oppose their occupier. But as Palestinian protest spreads across the historic Palestine, including in the cities of Haifa, Akka, Lid, and Tel Aviv, and throughout the diaspora, it is clear that they are not waiting for a U.S. president's permission to exercise that right once again. The events of the last weeks may have provoked the sparks for open conflict, but must be seen in their wider context. In a month 
when the respected international human rights organization, Human Rights Watch, issued a report that showed that Israel is conducting the apartheid regime across the whole of historic Palestine, from the river to the sea. Israel's violence must be seen in the context of its ongoing practices as a settler colonial state committed to the expansion of its territory and the displacement of Palestinians by every means possible, killings, dispossession, terrorization. Human Rights Watch, Human Rights Watch's detailed report confirms what Palestinians themselves and their global solidarity networks have been saying for years. It is based not on the Israeli myth about democracy or quote disputed territory, uh, parroted by our mainstream presses, but on the facts on the ground that constitute what the 2002 Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court described as, quote, inhumane acts committed in the context of an institutionalized regime of systematic oppression and domination by one racial group over any other racial group or groups and committed with the intention of maintaining that regime, end quote. Israel's daily practices, to which it gives the name of hachada, separation or segregation in Hebrew, give ample evidence of its conformity with that definition, whether we consider the siege and assault on Gaza, the separate and unequal infrastructure of the West Bank, or the ongoing evictions of Palestinian families in occupied East Jerusalem. It's the daily experience of Palestinians wherever they live, from the refugees denied the right to return or even to visit their homelands, to the Palestinian citizens of Israel, so-called, who live under the more than 60 discriminatory laws. However much Israeli politicians and their staunch Zionist defenders, including the Biden administration, bluster about the definition, the steady examination of the facts confirms that Israel is an apartheid state. In the end, their only response can be the censorship and defamation of the messengers and violence against Palestinian protest and self-defense. Today, we talk to Professor Nadara Shalhub Kavorkian, who's been a regular guest on Swana Region Radio, about the unfolding events in her home city of Jerusalem and across Palestine. Professor Kavorkian is the Lawrence B. D. Bieler Chair in Law in the Institute of Criminology of the Faculty of Law and a professor in the School of Social Work and Social Welfare at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. She's the author of many important articles and books, including Security Theology, Surveillance and the Politics of Fear that came out from Cambridge University Press in 2015. Welcome to the show again, Nadara. Thank you. First, Nadara, please tell us how you and your family have been keeping in these past weeks and, and what you can tell us about what you've seen uh, happening in Jerusalem over the last week or 10 days. Uh, the situation in Jerusalem is really very hard. Ethnic cleansing is hard at work. It's between what goes on in Sheikh Jarrah, where Palestinian families are under the threat of being uh, dispossessed of their homes and uprooted again. The situation here where I live in the old city and I'm speaking to you from the old city. And uh, of course, the flag parades and what, what is called by the Israelis, the Jerusalem parade, which is the their own celebrations of the occupation and colonization of our land with uh, thousands of lynch uh, mobs attacking uh, the old city with flags, with very, very provocative uh, chanting that to the Arabs and Muhammad is dead and that uh, may your villages and cities be burned and so on. So it was a very rough week when many Palestinian kids were attacked, 
were arrested. And of course, nobody can talk about the system of social control because the system of social control is there to protect the settlers rather than the Palestinians. Asking the police to intervene means asking the police to arrest a child or any call for help cannot work because it's about our criminalization. So you're born terrorist and born criminal, and you're at the limits of humanity, if not evicted from humanity. So the situation in Jerusalem is really very hard. Add to all this, the demolitions, the threat to demolition, the issue of the revocation of residency, uh, the colored ID, and so on. But the last seven, eight days were extremely hard, hard for kids, hard for families, hard for shop owners, hard for produce sellers in the old city, and hard for us as residents of, um, of uh, Jerusalem. So I know you've been involved for a long time, and we've talked about this on the show before, in, in women's rights and activism in occupied East Jerusalem, including defending Palestinian families from eviction by settlers and from detention and harassment and all kinds of other forms of settler and state violence. And I wondered if, if you could give us a longer context for the events in Jerusalem. And I, I did also wonder if you've actually been involved in the protests in Sheikh Jarrah and if you, if you happen to know yeah. that family. Yes, well, as you know, David, and you've walked with me in that area, specifically in that area I was in touch. The first two families that have faced the same condition as the Kurd family and others are the Hanun and Ghawi. And it was in 2009 where we actually, we were not only demonstrating the families stayed in the streets for months, hoping that the situation will change. The issue is because most of the analysis is that it's a legal issue. And if you go to court, the court will solve the problem and so on. The story is much more complicated than that. The story is that these are Palestinians that were, that were uprooted in 1948 during the Nakba. And that at that time, they came to different places, ended up in the Sheikh Jarrah area. And the story is that the Jordanian foreign ministry, even last week, or we a couple, provided the Palestinian Minister of Foreign Affairs with the ratified agreement that meant for the people of Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood in Jerusalem to support their claims. Yeah, because they were brought, there was an agreement between the UNRWA and the Jordanians that were controlling the area at that time to give those refugees the land to build their homes and afterward to give them the contract. The problem is that the 1967 occupation happened and they were unable to obtain those contracts. It's, it's a long story because each family have used different modes and they all thought that through the Israeli legal system they can obtain the right to stay in their land. The problem is that in one of the cases, they hired an Israeli, very famous uh, lawyer who ended up uh, switching the contract from owning to paying a small rent. And that specific change have really affected very badly the families because then today the claim is different that no, you're renting. It's not your land. And of course, the issue is that the land used to belong to the Jewish owners before 1948. But the same families do have homes and other Palestinian families have homes in, in West Jerusalem, in Haifa, in, in Akka, in Yafa, and so on. So if you want to evict them, give them their, their homes. Let Palestinians return to their homes that were taken by Jewish settlers. As you can see, in Sheikh Jarrah specifically, there are some 
Jewish Americans that by coming to the airport, and they've never been here in our area, they were granted a passport, and they decided to reside in the houses of the people in Sheikh Jarrah. So the story is very painful because it's not about legality. As you know, colonialism was done legally. So it's unauthorized. And the main aim is ethnic cleansing. And ethnic cleansing in Jerusalem can happen through housing demolition. It can happen through house arrest, revocation of residency, and so on. And in Gaza, it's the the actual full uh, death and destruction. So it's between that slow death and the immediate death where Palestinians are are living. And, uh, And we are in Jerusalem under fire and ethnic cleansing, and it's room by room, it's street by street, it's family by family. And lately they're marking the families. You know, my daughters were asking me today if they know, Mama, that non-Jews are living in our building, do you think that something will happen to you? To this degree, so that exclusivity of the Jew and the disposability of any other is the logic that is really affecting the rationale of the settler colonial state. I even do not want to call it occupation. It's pure colonialism. It's not occupation because it's beyond anything that is occupied because occupied forces needs to abide by specific rules. It's about the eviction, the the dispossession of land, the uprooting and the elimination of the indigenous community. Nada, to that point, both Israeli human rights organization, Beit Salem and um, Human Rights Watch have recently finally declared um, Israel as an apartheid state, which exactly speaks to what you were just discussing and sharing. How do you think that impacts both Palestinian resistance, the modes that Palestinians are using to fight back ethnic cleansing and this colonial settler colonial project and the international context for that resistance? Well, I can tell you one thing, uh, Rena. I am down in using the language that is acceptable for everybody. Oh, it's an apartheid. Oh, it's an occupation. This is colonialism. I'm using my narrative. I'm not using a narrative that can be accepted and understood by the West. I'm done with it. And I think we are really done with it because what we are seeing here is beyond any, you know, it's it's sometimes you're lost for words, yeah? And we have used the language of the West for years. And it did not change anything. The opposite, more settlements are being built, more houses are being demolished. People are using the legal system. People are calling on the police, but the police will never come to support Palestinians. The opposite. And you know, in my work on child arrest and so on, in my latest book on unchilding, I really speak about that. It's not even like what we have seen in Australia and Canada, which is, the stolen childhood and stolen generation. No, our children are non-children. Our parents are none. We are non-fathers. And therefore, it's not about apartheid. It's much more than this. It's it's really built on a logic of elimination. And this is what, um, what I see. And the violences of today's atrocities uh, in Gaza, for example, are trying to obscure what uh, the fact that we are really under ethnic cleansing since 1948, and today is the Nakba Day, the commemoration of the Nakba Day today is May 15th, and we need to remember that. If you just think about 
Jerusalem and connected to lead. That's exactly my latest book starts with lead, Hebron and Jerusalem connects the fact that, you know, the ethnic cleansing, the way pa Palestinians were uprooted in lead, the way they were killed, the massacre that happened in the Damas mosque, the fact that in Ramli they were put on trucks and uh, evicted. And looking at the situation today, I'm not going to lose the international language or the language of the international um, human rights law. I'm using our language and our language is clear. Uh, to come back to, to what you were saying, Nadara, the Palestinian protests have broken out not only in Jerusalem, Gaza, and the West Bank, but also across the whole of 48 Palestine. Settler mob violence against them is all too familiar and eerily fascistic in its forms. But I, I did want to ask if these ongoing protests by Palestinians inside Israel were expected, if you'd anticipated this thing happening. It's now clear to the internationals that we are one people, but we are one people. We are one people, you know, whether in Haifa, I'm from Haifa, I was born in Haifa. Look at the lynch mobs in Haifa. They are chanting in the streets where my sister lives, death to the Arabs. And the fact that they're coming with their motorcycles, shooting, and the police is unable to catch them. This is what they claim. I look at my cousin, Rima, sending me videos on my sister, Yasmin, telling me, look what is going on in our in our street. That is very telling. You see it in Kufurkanna, You see it in Nazareth. You see it in Led, in Ramli, in the Naqab, in, in Yafa. You know, today in Yaffa, they knew exactly where a Palestinian family is living. They really marked the, the space where the family lives and they threw a Molotov bomb and the face of, an, of a child, of 11-year-old child was burned. Now that tells you that whether you are a citizen of the state, a resident like in East Jerusalem, or a person living in the West Bank, and the West Bank also is divided area A, area B, area C, or in the, in the open prison in Gaza, you are attacked. So in Gaza today, they have killed and attacked. So far, they killed over 140 people, and we have over 500, 600 people injured in Gaza, in addition to all the destructions. And of course, you know, the lynching that happened in Batyam, uh, with uh, with a taxi driver and a guy who had um, an ice cream shop because he is Palestinian. So for years, Israel was trying to define us as um, um, Arab Israelis. That is very telling. And the use of the concept Arab Israelis is also supporting the colonial regime. So please never use it. It's Palestinians that are citizens of the state, although they are fifth column, Palestinian residents of uh, East Jerusalem, that can be that the residency can be revoked if the Israeli security system feels threatened and afraid and so on. So those borders and boundaries that were built were built exactly by the colonial state. You sent us a statement by professional health providers in Palestine that calls on professional health providers everywhere to speak out against the Israeli state's violent technologies of terror and dispossession. So I did want to ask you how else you would want the international community and especially global civil society to respond at this moment. 
what can we do? What would you want us to do? Well, at this point, you know, I always, um, I always stress it, but today I'm stressing it more. All we need is solidarity. All we need is to name the criminals and to name it the, the, the colonial state because silence is supporting them, is maintaining the colonial regime. So it's about solidarity. It's about speaking up. And in the statement by Palestinian mental health uh, workers that are talking, we really tried to, to talk about this moment, that there is an escalation and that we need to know that it's about the disposition of land. And we really uh, stressed the fact that mental health workers and critical scholars that are working in the field and writing must speak out against the Israeli, um, Israeli state violence, must really uh, organize, must act, must be in solidarity because otherwise we are really uh, being silent and being a bystander in this specific moment uh, means that you are really supporting and accepting and being co-opted and, and accomplicing with the dismemberment, the murder and the dispossession of, of Palestinians. And therefore the statement, and there are other statements by women organizations in uh, Jerusalem as well. Thanks again to the Palestinian rap group DAM for their track Mean Erhabi. Who's the terrorist, the theme of our conversation today. And let me remind our listeners that our guest today is Nadara Shalhoub Kavorkian, who's speaking to us from colonized East Jerusalem. Professor Kavorkian is a professor in the Faculty of Law and the School of Social Work and Welfare at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, but also Global Chair in Law at Queen Mary University of London. Her most recent book, among many important books and articles, is Incarcerated Childhood and the Politics of Unchilding, which came out recently from Cambridge University Press. Speaking of recent mob violence, we're going to return to the statement against Palestinians in Israel with the slogan, Death to Arabs. The statement says that, quote, what might look at first glance as political chaos or civil conflict led by a group of extremists is the result of well-calculated settler colonial machinery that operates politically both at the local and global level via media and its populace, end quote. Um, Nadira, could you elaborate on this analysis for our listeners? You can see from the attacks of the mobs, whether in uh, colonized Jerusalem or whether in colonized Haifa or Yaffa or uh, other places, you hear them from one side, you hear our kids screaming, hurriye, hurriye. And maybe one of the anecdotes that happened on Damascus Gate Destroyers is that the Israeli uh, Arut 13, one of the Israeli news 
person translated hurriya hurriya as, as if the Palestinians are attacking the police, while the mobs are calling death to the Arabs. And what we're saying in the statement is that it's very important to notice that Palestinians are calling for life and for hurriya, for freedom, while the, the settler mobs are calling for the death of others. And this is exactly what settler colonialism is. It's about the indigenization of the settler. It's about the eviction of the native and it's built on a logic of elimination. And this is what we see in the different places. Another, the, the statement from the health professionals also goes on to express, I quote, profound concern in the face of a relentless colonial violence aimed at destroying the physical and psychological well-being of our communities, uh, unquote. This is, this is an issue you've studied, I know, over many years. And I wondered if you could speak a little to the impact of Israeli violence of every degree of intensity on Palestinians and especially women and children who, as I know you've studied, and we noted in our introduction, are its most frequent victims. I think that what uh, what we are pointing as mental health workers and a Palestinian global mental health work is that there is a constant dismemberment or aim at dismembering Palestinians. And dismemberment is occurring by the dispossession of land, and this is what we have seen in 48 and the shrinking of our land and of the of the area of our livability but it's also dismemberment of the family where you have palestinians uh, on the green line outside the green line inside in jerusalem as residents inside israel as citizens in gaza as whatever and this dismemberment requires that first of all that we reread the borders between uh, the different groups, not as borders, but as different modes of ethnic cleansing of Palestinians, because the border is not between the Palestinians, because what Israel has constructed is the divisions between Palestinians that never work. And you can see clearly that demonstrations in Haifa and in Yaffa and in Led and in Jerusalem and Sheikh Jarrah, the old city, Silwan or Isawiyya and Gaza, we are all one hand. And it's not about us not being us. We know exactly who we are. It's about the system that is constantly uprooting. The point as mental health worker and as a person who works in mental health is that what the settler colonial regime is doing is to govern our hope. So that governance of hope and that attack against our futurity is hard at work. And it's, it's really, it can detect it. If you are a cartographer and you build a map, you will see that it is on the psychological level. Because if I walk in the street and they call me, and I was raised in Haifa, I was called Arabi Melochlach, a dirty Arab. And today I hear death to the Arabs, yeah? So nothing have changed. Nothing have changed since I was born. And what I'm trying to see, to show here in my work and we as Palestinian mental health workers and our statement as the Coalition for Jerusalemite Women is that women and children are paying a very, very high price with this dismemberment policies that is. And, and maybe I would say one more thing is that as mental health workers, it works on, it's that politics of affects it's the manipulation of the affects that is hard at work. 
And I think that, you know, maybe you know my work on secrecy. Now, my work on secrecy shows how everything we deal with, oh, it's about secret information. So you go to court and your child is arrested and the judge would tell you, yes, but there's the secret information that he threw a stone. Can you really show me the secret information? So, so you, you don't know, it's a maze, but it's creating major psychological burdens because you're fighting ghosts. But at the same time, survivability against governance at hope, the power of Palestinians, yeah. of continuing to walk the walk, to speak up, our solidarity, our love, our togetherness never cease to amaze me. We're all, you know, if you look at me, you know, on the day where the Jerusalem parade happened, on my Fitbit, I think I walked 37,000 <laughs> steps because I was between here and there supporting, helping, complaining, trying, bringing, but it's state's governance of hope that is affecting the psychic that we need to take it seriously because some people are really suffering from major psychological hardships. Thank you, Dr. for, for sharing that because it does kind of um, really look at the layers of um, colonialism. So the psyche itself is also a site to be governed, right? This notion of governance of hope, I think is really important to kind of amplify and center. But for a moment, I'd like us to return to the punitive measures that we're seeing from the Israeli state. Israeli response both to the protests in Sheikh Jarrah and to those um, at Al-Aqsa have been unusually violent. And the current assault on Gaza is unrestrained in its fury. Has Israeli use of force against Palestinians been increasing recently, or is that we're also seeing more of it on new media, social media? Is it making it harder for us, for them to conceal it, for us to not see it? Well, it was there all the time, Rana, and we know that very well. If you just go back to Led and check what happened in 1948, in Led, they stole not only the, the homes, not only the gold, not only the property, not everything. And they turned people into refugees in their homes. And, and we are still facing it, but it's taking different shapes. They're using different technologies. So some of them are apparent and visible. Some of them are totally invisible. The use of the mob, for example, is really very interesting because in my work on price tag, for example, that were writing on the walls. And it, it was like in 2000, 2010, where I worked on detecting and collecting and looking at the work of price tag people. And the price tag people are exactly those mobs that are working today. And I clearly stated that it's not about the settlers that are working alone. And this is a, a small group, it's the state. So that violence takes different shapes. Sometimes it's at the hands of the state, by the military, by the Shabak, by the surveillance system, by the educational system. Look at the work of Ahmad Saadi on the way they infiltrated and penetrated into our educational system. And you can clearly see it in Jerusalem here because all of a sudden the Hebrew University opened its heart to accepting Palestinian, uh, Palestinians from East Jerusalem and the president of the university clearly said, okay, we are bringing and we're taking them and we're trying to train police officers and we're being fair to both sides. And I really stood up and said, listen, those 
kids from East Jerusalem are really living in a colonized area and it's an occupied area. So this enlightened education is really problematic, yeah? But those police officers that you are training, you're training them to shoot us. So, so it's, it's different modes of, and different modes of violence and cruelty that, that in Gaza you see it in, in really necropolitical regime, clear necropolitics. It's the suffocation, it's the asphyxiation of people, it's controlling water, it's controlling electricity, it's counting calories. And I personally was working on, on writing that report that looked at the way Israel have counted the calories that arrives to Gaza into what goes on in the Naqab where Palestinians were demonstrating against bravery, yeah? Where Palestinians were telling the state that stop confiscating. So it's in the name of urban planning and in the name of zoning and planning that they are uh, stealing land. And, you know, look at the separation wall. The separation wall, over 80% of the separation wall is built on Palestinian land. And then they have same area that were not allowed to pass by. It's all well calculated, but it's all telling you. It's indicative that the land is stolen. Yeah, Nadara, you, you just used the phrase the necropolitical and, and the statement itself refers to the binary necropolitics of the settler state. This is something I know that you worked on extensively over the years. So I wondered if you could explain the expression. You've given some great examples of it, but if you could actually explain the expression and, and how necropolitics specifically works in Palestine. Yeah, well, I'm using necropolitics is a concept that was developed by Ashil Mbembe, a Cameroonian South African today philosopher that looks not only at the biopolitics, you know, in the actual state, but rather the necropolitics. And necropolitics is the economy of life and death, which means when is the state controlling who has the right to live and who should die and when and how. So the necropolitical regime is a regime whereby the state, if I might, you know, I'm using the fact that the state is either causing slow death and it's necropolitical or actual death. And even what the Jaspir Puar have said, the right to maim. So the state has the right to kill because it's defending itself. And you've heard your president today and your president before, Israel has the right to defend itself. Everybody claims and, and raises this claim that I can't hear anymore. You know, it's exactly colonial, Western colonial uh, language that I cannot jargon that I can't uh, accept, but it's part of the entire global colonial regime that is controlling us. So it is that necropolitics and necropolitical is about the right of the state to kill or to put people in this death zone. So Jerusalem is sometimes a death zone. Seriously, you see it, you see what goes on in housing demolitions, in unemployment, in poverty, and look at the West Bank and the, the coronavirus, who gets to be vaccinated, who can't be vaccinated. And look at the situation today in Gaza and the really the shattering of every element of life and livability. This is a clear. Israel is not only a colonial state, it's a necro-colonial state that is hard at work with the support of the colonial, the general global colonial regimes. 
This weekend actually marks the global commemoration of Nakba Day, May 15th, which honors the victims not only of Palestinians ex- expelled and massacred in 48, but also this ongoing notion of the Nakba and those who have been the victims of that we're seeing just right now in Sheikh Jarrah, in uh, 48 Palestine, in Gaza. Can you comment on how this ongoing, this contemporary Nakba feels on the ground in occupied East Jerusalem, in colonized East Jerusalem, I should correct myself and use the correct terminology. Well, I think that uh, we live the Nakba every day. We know the Nakba every day. If you talk to produce sellers in, in Damascus Gate and talk to them, they will tell you they came, they were in Lydia, or they come from uh, Sdud and so on. So it's commemorated, but it's in our hearts and our minds. The keys are being hid in women's clothing, just to show it to us that you know the key of the house is still there. Nakba is a major trauma. It's a continuous trauma and the continuous and accumulative trauma is seen by what we see in colonized Jerusalem where dispossession, where the settler is invading home, where the settler is using their legal system, using their their criminal justice system and framing us in theological terms, as Fanon would say. This is why, you know, at one point I was I was trying to to frame my book as a caged childhood and the politics of unchilding. But then I refrained from using cage because one of the kids in Jerusalem told me, no, we are not animals and don't don't use the cage, but we live in Zinzani, which is solitary confinement. And she insisted on that concept of solitary confinement, Zinzani, Zenazin. So the commemoration of the Nakba is also the, the daily living of the Nakba. And I think that when we talk about May 15th, we also remember it's about our everydayness, our everydayness of survivability, our everydayness of refusing to accept the governance of our hopes and refusing to accept uh, settler colonialism and the dispossession and the uprooting and to clearly claim. And you see it, it's after it's 73 years, but 73 years when Haifa is in an intifada and the lead is built intifada. And maybe I should remind you that they planned lead as a city of collaborators. It did not work. It did not work. And that concept of coexistence that they played on, because they call them mixed cities. Yeah, I don't know what is mixed in those cities, but is it is an ongoing intifada. And they talk about mixed and coexistence, but it's the existence of those that can exist because they are the, according to the narrative of the state, they are the chosen people. Show me in the world a country that would say, only if you are a Jew, you can live and you are chosen and you have the right to for a home, for life, for livability. Show me one country in the world. Can you get in the U.S. and say, well, I am a Christian, so give me the passport. But if you come to Ben-Gurion and you say, I'm, I'm Jewish from Brooklyn or from I don't know where, you are part, you are already with a passport and you can come and claim the home of a Palestinian. This is a racialized system. So the commemoration of the Nakba is there to stress that this is an ongoing settler colonial project that is failing. They are not succeeding because the the current situation is exactly telling us that 
our our power to continue and to live and to maintain our just right is still um, very powerful. Thank you, Nadra. It always impresses me how you managed to give us hope that based so profoundly in a very clear-sighted sense of just how terrible <laughs> Israeli colonialism is for Palestinians. And this has been a, a really tremendous lesson in both colonization and in the indomitable resistance of, of Palestinians. And I just wanted to give you a chance to, to end our broadcast today with a response to President Joe Biden, who, along with his various officials, have stated that their support for Israel's right to self-defense and claim that its renewed violence in Gaza remains in their terms proportional or proportionate. How would you respond to that? I, I don't think that that language speaks to me. I think that this is a, a passe language. Biden, Obama, whoever talks about Israel's rights to defend itself. I want to respond by telling you a story of a Palestinian kid who was home arrested in a colonized East Jerusalem. And I tried to help out to see what can I do for a child who is home arrested for such a long time. And that was his sixth arrest and he was 14 year old. So I came to understand what can we do together? What do you like? What can you do in the two rooms in the old city where you can't breathe? The police, the welfare, everybody can invade and check on you and put you in prison. And, and he said, I would like to maybe work as a carpenter, but how can I get him out of the house? So, so I asked him, what would you like really to do? And he said, I love working on uh, doors. So I opened my laptop and we started looking at doors in Jerusalem, the long door, the big door, the green door, the wide doors, the whatever. And, uh, and this, uh, three months ago, that was almost two years ago, three months ago, I went to visit again and I noticed that he has a set of doors in his home. His mom said every time she sees the door, she wants to curse me because this place is very small and her son has those doors. But it's a beautiful way of, of working and finding ways out of the, you know, dispossession. I mean, the psychological dispossession. And when I asked him, Osama, why do you like doors? He said, but you've opened your laptop. I said, yes, but you told me about doors. And he said, you know what? They closed all the doors in our faces. And now I have the keys to open all the doors. Now, tell your president that they cannot keep on closing our doors. Our little kids, our people, our solidarity and love to each other will keep on trying to find keys and ways to open the doors for freedom, for hope, for our governance of ourselves and not the colonial governance. Adara, thank you. That's a wonderful way to end this broadcast today. And I just want to remind our listeners that you've just been listening to the astonishing eloquence and deeply committed analysis mm -hmm. of Professor Nadara Shalhoub Kevorkian speaking to us from colonized East Jerusalem. Professor Kevorkian is the Lawrence D. Bieler Chair in Law in the Institute of Criminology of the Faculty of Law and a professor in the School of Social Work and Social Welfare at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, another colonizing institution. But she's also the Global Chair in Law at Queen Mary University of London. 
She's the author of many important articles and books that I would encourage listeners who are interested in what she's been saying to check out. Most recently, Incarcerated Childhood and the Politics of Unchilding, and also Security Theology, Surveillance and the Politics of Fear, both of which came out from Cambridge University Press. That's it for our podcast today. The Swana Collective that produces these podcasts is happy to thank our guest, Nader Shalhub Kavorkian. And you'll find this and other shows available to download at kpfk.org, but also as podcasts on Spotify and other uh, platforms where you get your uh, podcasts on a regular basis. We'd like to thank Ankina Antaram, our fellow collective member, for her post-production work on this show. My name is David Lloyd, and I'm a member of the collective of the South Asia, West Asia, and Northern Africa, or SWANA radio show. And on behalf of my co-host and co-collective member, Rana Sharif, and all of our collective members, I'd like to wish our listeners a great day. حرام هذا هذا عمره 200 سنه الشجر هذا 200 سنه كان العالم تعيش منه تدفن منه راح كسروه